Welcome to the Islam and Liberty Podcast. This episode, we have a recording of our 7th International Islam and Liberty Conference, the Islamic case for religious freedom held in Jakarta. Today, we have Zainal Abidin Bagir. He is the Executive Director of the Center of Religious and Cross-Cultural Studies at Gajah Mada University in Indonesia. Pat Zainal specializes in philosophy of religion, religion and science, and religion and ecology. He is part of a panel, Blasphemy Law, Issues and Challenges, chaired by Irfan Engineer. Zainal's presentation speaks on blasphemy law in Indonesia, comparing it globally, seeing how has it been used, current revitalization of the law, and paths for revision. Yeah, good morning, everyone. First of all, thank you very much to Mr. Ali Salman. And also, I found out um, this morning that there are two Alis, actually. I thought I corresponded with one person, but actually with Ali Salman and Ali Iskandar. Okay, so yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. It's an honor to be here. And of course, Tim Shah um, on the back. Thank you also. We've, we've been here for a few days. So my topics is the politics and law of blasphemy in Indonesia. I will focus on these two um, dimensions, the, the political and legal dimension. Four points which I want to um, discuss this morning. I will start with locating Indonesian blasphemy law in the global map of countries with blasphemy law, and then look uh, more particularly at Indonesian blasphemy law. What works does it do? How how has it been used? And we can see that from one country to another, actually, it has different functions. And then third, the latest development of the law, the, um, which I call as revitalization of the law. And then in the end, I want to um, speak about ways to improve the situation. So this is, um, I take it from the report by USCIRF. In 2017, they published this report respecting rights, measuring the world's blasphemy laws in 71 countries in the world, which until now still have the um, blasphemy law. And um, the interesting thing about this report is that it makes uh, a ranking. So there are 71 blasphemy laws, but not all of them are the same. Some are worse than the others. So what you see here, I mean, um, on top, yeah, these are the average countries, and then this is the, well, slightly worse than this, and then the few countries down here is the worst countries, and Indonesia is in the middle. So it's almost average, but um, it's not the worst, but it's also not, not um, among the best. So I'll show you um, a more detailed scoring of a few countries, and I put um, Indonesia here in the middle. <clears throat> so you can see Indonesia is better than Thailand, Saudi Arabia, Italy. Actually, Italy is really bad, I mean, according to this score. And then Pakistan is among the worst, Pakistan and Iran. And then um, the ones which are better is Malaysia, Philippines, and then Ireland is the, the um, softest one. But what is interesting from this report is not just the ranking, but also the criteria which they use. I don't know whether you can read this criteria. Um, I mean, the first column. So it looks at um, how much of um, freedom of expression are limited by this law, and then how much of um, freedom of religion um, is limited. <clears throat> and then the vagueness, the more vague the law is, the score is higher. And then the proportionality, 
how severe is the punishment for blasphemy, for example, and then whether it's discriminatory or not. So one of the findings is that almost all the blasphemy laws, they have problems, they violate human rights in one way or another, but they don't violate them in the same way. So like, um, for example, in the case of discrimination, not all the laws are equally discriminatory. Some laws are more discriminative. And then in terms of the speech and forum limitations, and also the last one, hierarchy of law, whether it's in the constitution or whether it's in the national law, the federal law, local law, etc. So um, that adds also to the score. So again, what is interesting with this is we, we, it, it's a more detailed analysis of these different blasphemy laws, which means that if you want to make improvement, if you want to revise, you know which part actually can be revised. So that is where Indonesia, and now I'm, I'm going to look at the Indonesian blasphemy law more particularly. So there are two sources of blasphemy regulations in Indonesia. One is in the penal code, a very short article, the highest imprisonment for blasphemy. And what is blasphemy? It's explained here. The highest um, punishment is imprisonment of five years, and it is for any person who deliberately in public gives expression to feelings or commits an act which, so this is the, the blasphemy part, enmity with abusing or staining a religion. So what does it mean, staining a religion? Nodai agama, that's in Bahasa Indonesia. And then the second article, actually, it's even puzzling for many people. Um, with the intention to prevent a person to adhere to any religion. So you can understand this, this wording if you know the context, which partly I will talk about it more shortly, is the political competitions in 1960s between Muslim political parties and the communist parties. So the communists are regarded as those without religion and they, so anyone who prevent a person to adhere to any religion that is regarded as also a blasphemy. So that is the penal code. And then there is another law. And this is even more complicated. Well, every word of it is, I mean, has many interpretations. So if you're not clear, what does it mean? You are not alone. Uh, many people, they, they don't understand. Even judges have different interpretations about it. But the words in red is the most, uh, the key concepts here. Um, so what is prohibited is conveying, endorsing, or soliciting public support for an interpretations of a certain religion embraced by Indonesian people. And then there's a problem. What religion is embraced by Indonesian people? Because um, nowhere in um, our law, not in the constitution, not in the law, there is anything mentioned that these are the religions embraced by Indonesian people. But as a matter of fact, in practice, that means um, six religions, which is Islam, Protestantism, Catholicism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Confucianism. So those are the six which, which is regarded as have been traditionally embraced by Indonesian people. So others are okay, but they are not protected by this law. And then, um, or undertaking religious activities that resemble, that resemble the religious activities of the religion. This is probably also puzzling, where such interpretations and activities deviate from the basic tenets of the religion. And then there's a question here again, of course, who knows the basic tenets of religion or who has the authority 
to say that these are the basic tenets of religion, of Islam, Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism. So just to give you um, an example, in Indonesia, we have um, the General Council of Ulama, which is regarded as representing all Islamic organizations, but they are actually not. They don't represent the whole groups of Muslims. And then there is the Indonesian Association of um, Protestant Churches, which is regarded as representative of, the, of Christianity in Indonesia. But there are more churches outside this association than there are inside this association. So it's, it's always difficult to say which is the representations of the religion. So that is one important thing, which um, when we speak about the revision, that will be central to address this issue, whether we should have some authority to make a decision about it or not. How did we come to this wording, to this um, formulation? So I'll, I'll go back to the history of the law. So the law was established in 1965, but actually um, the debate has started even day one after the independence of Indonesia, when there was a debate whether Sharia should be mentioned in the constitution. And the decision at that time, well, Indonesia is a non-religious um, um, state, so there should not be any mention about Sharia, even if it's only for Muslims. Um, so there's nothing in the constitution mentioning any name of a particular religion. So there, there are mentions about religion, about God, about the unity of God, for example, but there is no mention um, of any particular religion. So that's in the constitution. But the debate between Muslims and the nationalists, and then later in 1950s, 1960s, with the communist parties, which actually at that time, the Indonesian Communist Party was regarded as the third largest after um, Soviet Union and China. So communist party was... I mean, it's just like other parties, um, so it was legal, but there were some very fierce um, competitions, um, of course, with the, the Muslim political groups. And 1965 is the, was the start of the purge of the communists. Um, so this law came before that, but we should understand it as part of this, this competition. And that's why there was um, a clause about the prohibitions, the prohibitions to prevent anyone from adhering to any one religion. And then another important thing, another important significance of the law is that it is the source. I mentioned earlier that there is no definition of religion. There is no mention of any particular religion in the constitutions or any law. But in the elucidation of this law, when it speaks about what are the religions embraced by Indonesians, then um, it mentions um, um, the six religions which I, I mentioned earlier, and it is only in that place that there is the, the mention of the six religions. So it is an important source of the definition of religion in Indonesia. And also, um, the six are the ones which are included, but what are excluded? Among the ones excluded are, for example, clearly the indigenous religions. I mean, the religions which are locally grounded in Indonesia before Islam came, before Christianity came, but they are not recognized as religion. Um, they are recognized more as a culture. And yesterday, Bob Hefner said the big change starting in 2017 when there is more recognition for this indigenous religion. And then thirdly, um, the significance of the law is that in general, the law usually was imposed other than to punish um, certain individuals, but it's also 
was used to draw boundaries of orthodoxy or mainstream on macro and micro level. By macro level, for example, Ahmadiyah. Is it part of it or not? Shia. And then also Baha'i, for example. For sometimes Baha'i was understood as a deviation of Islam. But then in 2014, the Ministry of Religious Affairs said, well, Baha'i is, is a different religion, so it's not a deviation. And that statement is important. To say that Baha'i is religion is important because um, otherwise it's regarded as a deviation of Islam. When it is not regarded as a deviation of Islam, then it is saved from this law. So this is the main political works that the blasphemy law um, has done. That is to draw boundaries of orthodoxy. And that explains why after um, 2000, after the start of the democratization, when there is more freedom, actually it's probably paradoxical that this law has been used much more frequently. So I will show you later how frequent, but I call this phenomenon as the revitalization of the law, which um, actually came about after the democratization. Why? It came after 1998, um, as I mentioned earlier, because you can use it um, as a political instrument to draw boundaries. So the revitalization of the law consists in five things. First, it has been used more frequently since 2000. How frequent? I will show you. And then um, it was brought to the Constitutional Court four times. And in these four times, the Constitutional Court rejected the petition, which means that the law has become more established because it is acknowledged by the Constitutional Court. And then third, the phrase defamation of religion, that's the Indonesian word for blasphemy, panodaan agama, it appears in other laws which were made after 2002. And then at the local level, because after democratization, we also have decentralization, the local, the provinces, and then the districts, they can make their own laws. And some of this um, language of defamation of religion was also brought to the local law. So it becomes more entrenched. And then just um, last month, we had a draft. It's not yet official, but the new draft of our penal code, well, many people had advocated to, to soften, to revise, to improve the article on blasphemy law. But in the end, in the last draft, it's just almost intact. It's taken almost intact from the old law. And the penal code, which we have now, actually it's 100%, well, almost 100% comes from the Dutch. So we actually has not had our own penal code until now. If when we are done with this draft penal code, then that will be the first Indonesian own penal code. But unfortunately, it may bring some objectionable elements from the earlier penal code. So about the increase, the part of the re revitalization of the law. So it is also interesting to see that there is a shift of the target. In 1965, it mainly targets the indigenous religions. And from 1965 to 1998, there were only around 10 cases using this law. From 2001 to 2010, 40 cases. So you can see in 35 years, there were only 10 cases. And then in the 10 years, there are 40 cases. And then 2010 until now, more 40 cases. So you can see how, how dramatic actually the increase of the use of this law. And then what is more important is the new targets. Um, in the past, it targets um, individuals which with yeah strange pronouncement or some of the mystical, Japanese mystical groups. 
But take the example of the Ahmadiyah. The Ahmadiyah has been in Indonesia since early 20th century, but it was never regarded as the target of the defamation of religion or the blasphemy law. There were debates with the Nahdlatul Ulama, with Muhammadiyah, but it, there was no legal instrument applied to, to the Ahmadiyah. But starting 2002, at least, Ahmadiyah has become the target of this. And then the Shia. The Shia has been in Indonesia probably since very early when Islam came to Indonesia. Again, um, there were debates between Sunni and Shia, etc. But um, now this debate becomes judicialized. That is by using this law. Since 2012, which is recent, actually. Now, why, why, why did it happen? I mean, all these groups which have been in Indonesia for a long time, now this law was applied against them. So there is the only, um, I mean, no theological explanation can explain this because if the Ahmadiyya or the Shia was deviant, they should be deviant since they were here. But why is it only starting 2002 or 2012? So it's not a theological reason, but mostly political reasons, as I mentioned earlier. And exactly that's where the, the main use of the law. Okay, so the constitutional reviews of the law, I'll go very quickly. So the main arguments for the constitutional reviews of the law in 2010, the main argument is mostly liberal human rights arguments that the law now contradicts the new amended constitution. So we amended our constitution and in one of the amendment in 2002, there was a whole new chapter on human rights, including on religious freedom. So religious freedom has gained a firmer ground after um, 2002. So now the argument is that with this new constitution, um, now it becomes even clearer that the law, the blasphemy law are against the religious freedom. But that argument was rejected. <clears throat> And then in 2012, some Shi'i, um, also some Christians um, brought the law to the constitutional court. It was rejected again. And then in 2018, the law was again brought by the Ahmadis and the constitutional court rejected that again. So you can see the main arguments are different. So in the first review, it's, it was more human rights, liberal arguments, but in the other uh, reviews, It starts with the victim's perspectives. Um, actually, yesterday I saw the Ahmadi lawyer who was here, but I don't know, probably she's not here, who brought this law to the Constitutional Court. But interestingly, the Constitutional Court said that they cannot accept the petition, but they said, well, this is not a perfect law. Um, it can be revised. But revision is beyond the job of the Constitutional Court, so they recommend the parliament and the government to revise the law. So how do you revise the law? There, there are no clues in the constitutional court's um, government, but just to, to go through what, what possible ways to, to do the revision. So one of the ways, which I think is interesting, is um, that there are now some new international norms which can be the source, part of the source to revise the law. If we cannot revoke it, how can we revise it? For example, this resolution um, 1618, which I think is very instructive. So if you study the evolutions of the resolution 1618, you will see that it started in 1999, proposed by the Organizations of Islamic Conference, but then it was rejected. And then in 2011, there was no more language of defamation of religion or defamation of Islam, but now the language is combating intolerance. I think this is a more 
promising avenue. And it's much clearer and it's in line with ICCPR. So combating intolerance, negative stereotyping, incitement to violence, discrimination and violence against persons based on religion and belief. So this is one important norm. I can speak more about it later if there's question about it. But another source is, yeah, the important things about this resolution is that it also the victim, I mean, or the targets is not the people who are regarded as deviant, but the people who are intolerant. So people who are attacking the Ahmadis, that's the intolerant people. And what we have to do is combating that type of intolerance. And it is more, more um, in line with the, and the, um, who is protected? The minority. So the main idea behind this resolution in the beginning was to protect minority Muslims in European countries. But now, I mean, if you want to protect Muslim minority in European countries, then you should also protect other minority in Muslim countries. So it should be reciprocal. And I think that's why it's, it's important. The other norm is, and I think this is more detailed, the Rabat Plan of Action, which was in 2012. It, it is much more detailed. But two things, which, I mean, if you use these two new international norms, is that you try to less criminalize and then you focus not on deviation, which requires orthodoxy to determine which one is deviant or not, but there are more measurable instruments like, well, determining um, incitement to hate, for example, that's still difficult, um, or incitement to violence, incitement, not the violence itself, that's still difficult, but there are more instruments to measure that rather than um, deviation or um, different interpretation. So I think that's some of the clues if we want to revise the blasphemy law. Um, probably these two norms may be useful. Thank you very much. With reference to the first uh, learned speaker, Zainal Abidin Bakir, uh, very useful presentation on Indonesia. I have one question and one comment, maybe. You said that uh, the latest development with regard to Ahmadiyya is to target the attackers on the Ahmadiyya rather than to uh, protect or, or, you know, the theological aspect of the Ahmadiyya. Whether this can also be said with regard to the Shia, because the Shia you mentioned earlier that there is no theological kind of case. It's a political scenario. Uh, that is my question, whether the law here also target the attackers or the Shi uh, mazhab itself. Uh, my comment is that uh, the development uh, with regard to Shia, seems to be taking this political line uh, also in some other countries. Maybe it is a kind of epiphenomena, a side phenomenon of the rise of religiosity in conservatism, uh, because uh, there is no really strong theological case on grounds of religion to or to oppose Shia. But interestingly, this uh, maybe in Malaysia, if you regard 
the views of some muftis and imams attacking the Shia as a theological development. Some muftis have declared in Malaysia that they are not Muslims, which is extraordinary. I think there is no uh, um, valid theological ground for that kind of fatwa. If there is such a fatwa, it is not correct. But uh, it is more than political attack on the Shia. In Afghanistan that I have experienced, uh, they have a 15 to 20 percent Shia population. Uh, and latest scenarios seem to be that they are fairly comfortable with the Sunnis and Shia with one another on social level and so on. But there is a sort of resentment developing against Iran that Iran seemed to be interfering, supporting the Shias of Afghanistan to do this, to do that. This political aspect uh, seems to generate a level of tension. Uh, and that is uh, maybe mainly political. On theological ground, I, don't, I wonder if one can use blasphemy laws against the Shia. They are Muslims after all, but uh, this political dimension seems to be growing up. Uh, and whether this is all uh, in a general pattern or in Malaysia, there is sort of a separate development. That is a kind of comment. Thank you. Yeah, um, thank you very much, Professor Hashem Kamali, um, for your question. So yeah, I, I have to correct, maybe I was not clear. So now what we have in the law now is uh, like, for example, for Ahmadiyya, there is a regulation, not a law. It's, it's a joint ministerial decree, which restricts the activities of the Ahmadiyya. So the Ahmadiyya is not banned, uh, but they cannot do certain things. So that's the regulation. But in practice, actually, well, I can be corrected if I'm wrong. But in most places in Indonesia, Ahmadiyya can do many things. I mean, um, holding, for example, the Friday prayers, etc. So the enforcement is different from one place to another. Uh, but what the law says is that they are restricted. They are not banned. <clears throat> so when I said about target the attackers, that is the proposal. So rather than um, focusing the proposal for the revision, rather than focusing on groups which are regarded as deviant and determining deviant is very problematic. Um, I can give you more um, examples. It's not only Shia. So many groups, Muslim, Christian, Hindus, Buddhists, uh, so very problematic. So we, we try to avoid that. Um, <clears throat> so, but what we don't want is violence. So what needs to be targeted is the, the intolerant people who attack that because violence for whatever reason, for, um, I mean, yeah, for whatever reason, basically, um, it's not um, acceptable. And it's also um, interesting um, in places in which law enforcement authorities do their job well, um, actually, the situation is okay. I mean, take the example of the Ahmadiyya in West Java, in Kuningan. They've been attacked for um, many times. There was like a group, probably, I don't know, maybe 1,000 people in one village. So it's clearly indicated that th this is an Ahmadi community. They've been um, attacked for many years. And then in 2010, there's a good police who did her job well, and she's a woman. 
and it stopped the violence. In many other places, there was no violence. So it really depends on how the law enforcement um, authorities do their job. So again, regardless of the theological issues, we don't want attack to anyone. <clears throat> uh, they have to be free to do what they, they believe. And um, in this case, there is no distinction between Ahmadiyya and Shia. Well, there's one difference for the Shia. There is no law, which um, no regulation, which basically says that, um, which restricts the Shia um, activities. But there are a few already, a few criminal cases directed toward the Shia leaders. So that's, that's the situation. So of course, this is not ideal. And what I said was, well, a kind of um, proposal. Well, if I give uh, more examples of what kind of things um, can be charged under the blasphemy law, it, it's ridiculous. I mean, like, for example, there was one mother who was charged, put in jail for four months because he said, well, the loudspeaker in that mosque, it's too loud. I have a kid. I cannot. I mean, it, it, so things like that. That happens at least in two cases. And then many things. So it, it's crazy. So this law, I mean, if there is, yesterday Asri has the um, argument about freedom versus harmony. So even if there is an argument that the blasphemy law is there to maintain harmony, it didn't achieve that purpose. It didn't create harmony. I said it even created the reverse because certain people use the law to create disorder. So that's the, the argument. The first question for Pak Zainal, it relates to the history of the blasphemy law in Indonesia. I'm curious on the, um, on the societal uh, situation during 1960, 1965, when you mentioned there, there was a tension between Islamists and nationalists. When I read the um, considerations of the blasphemy law, it does mention the presidential decree number two, year 62 and presidential decree number 264 year 1962 on the banning of um, civil society organizations which opposed to socialism indonesia some of them are freemason rotary club and so on so i wonder what was the situation that triggering the establishment of blasphemy law because it was uh, established in january 1965 prior to the communist um, tragedy in September. And then for Arum, <clears throat> well, of course, it, it will be a long story. And I think no one historian can have the final answer. But it's interesting, just one interesting fact. When So the law was um, made in January 1965, um, but it was known, it was published only in March 1965 in the newspaper with the, I mean, the title, Sukarno released the decree on um, defamation of religion. And right next to it is another news about Sukarno being the leader of Muslim countries, like Muslim, the international Muslim leader. So it's a kind of political statement in a sense. Um, so it's a political um, accommodation to Muslim um, interest. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, my question is to Pat Zainal, uh, just to question uh, I'm wondering what is your experience in relation to ISIL, the International Covenant on Elimination of Racial Discrimination. After all, Indonesia is a signatory to ISIL. Uh, are there uh, mechanisms and means to use ISIL uh, or to apply ISIL in relation to blasphemy law, hate speech situation, and so on and so forth? Uh, that's one question. 
Uh, question number two, the doctrine of proportionality. Uh, I did not hear you mentioning whether that is applicable to the Indonesian situation uh, in relation to uh, the interpretation and application of blasphemy laws that you have. Perhaps you would just like to share on these two points. Thank you. Yeah, well, <clears throat> it's interesting. We have the ICER, um, eliminations of racial discrimination. And then, of course, there is the, the other one on eliminations of religious intolerance, I think, right? Or discrimination based on religion, which is not a convention. So it's not ratified. But Indonesia ratified the racial one. What has been done actually, so it's not, it does not include religion. That's a bit unfortunate. So, but what has been done um, by the National Commission on Human Rights in Indonesia, for example, last year, they issued a standard sort setting and norms on ICER. Um, and then this year, they are drafting another standard setting and norms on freedom of religion or belief. So the way is to create like some kind of well, this is not a new norm. This is not a law. But at least you have an interpretation of both ISAR and freedom of religion in place, which is hoped to be used by judges, by police, um, and others. So th th that is the, the latest um, development. Gets out the uh, followers, uh, I mean, uh, like uh, quote unquote de de deviance groups. Uh, there is uh, what is the connection with your presentation about hate speech? Uh, to Zainal, I want to know about your opinions about the differences, uh, freedom of religions and freedom of belief. Yeah, uh, in Malaysia, yesterday uh, Professor Hamali said that uh, there are freedom of religions in Malaysia, but not in Ahmadiyya. There is not freedom of uh, uh, belief because we cannot. Uh, built uh, Jumat prayers in the public area, something like this. I think in Indonesia, the case is a bit more complicated. But um, normatively speaking, I think there is, well, in my understanding, there is no um, difference between religion or belief. It's just another name. Uh, if we take ICCPR, actually, um, it says freedom of conscience, thought, religion. So anything you believe, that's equal. I mean, it has to be protected. You have the freedom. Because, I mean, if you make that distinction, then the protections um, will depend on how you define religion. But how do you define religion? I mean, in Indonesia, we see defining religion is a big issue. Um, and if you are, your religion is not um, within that definition, then you are not protected. Of course, that's problematic. But I see that um, definition of religion is also an issue in many um, countries. If um, I went to Vietnam, for example, um, most of the religions which are protected there are local religions, local Vietnamese religion. But in Indonesia, local religions are not regarded as religion. So um, I think the mentions of thought, conscience, religion, belief, it's just, it's just one way to say that, well, all are protected. But in Indonesia, now um, it's a bit unfortunate. Belief is usually used to refer to the indigenous beliefs, religion to the world religions. So I think that's not a good interpretation, not a right interpretation, but we need to discuss that. But for sure, it doesn't mean that belief refers to the Ahmadiyya, for example. Ahmadiyya is clear in Indonesia, it's clear. It's Islam, but Devian. So Shia 
it's Islam. But sometimes, well, it's again, not one particular regulation, but some people regard it as also deviant. But both are regarded as Islam in the eyes of the law. So belief, yeah, sometimes when it's used differently, it's used to refer to the indigenous beliefs. Thank you. Sorry, assalamualaikum. Morning. Just wondering, where is the um, the Aman message that taking place uh, in Indonesia? We have, I mean, a, a preliminary discussion in Malaysia uh, to discuss about this Aman message. To what extent that this Aman message is discussed in the public discourse about this, but in particular about this Jainism in Indonesia, we have problems in Malaysia. Uh, as Faisal mentioned, so every state have their own authorities with regard to Islam, and some state has have made it uh, Shiism as deviant. But as far as I'm concerned, we have yet to label Shiism as uh, as as infidel or not part of Muslim followers. Uh, with that, perhaps uh, Bapa uh, Zana can explain to us a bit. Well, yeah, about the Aman message. Um, <clears throat> actually, a few years ago, I promoted Aman message. Uh, um, but um, if you ask what is the development in, in Indonesia, <clears throat> well, um, yeah, I'm sorry to say this, but I think no one listened to it. Um, no one take it seriously. Um, but, um, you know, um, first of all, <clears throat> um, there is one... Um, serious. I think it's a very useful document, especially if you want to advocate um, for the Shia, for example. I would use that. It is a very useful document for that purpose. But it has limitations. Um, it has limitations because, for example, um, any document which draws the boundaries of what is Islam, um, of course, it will exclude others which for the purpose of protecting citizens, it, that is the limit. I mean, it, 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 it cannot, I mean, like, for example, for the Ahmadis, for example, it, you cannot use that for sure, because for that, that means Ahmadi is out of Islam. Um, again, it's not important um, for me. Um, I mean, if we speak in terms, um, well, for Muslims, it's important. But I mean, if you speak in the framework of citizenship, it is not important to judge um, one's belief. Um, so Aman message is, um, Aman message use is limited, I think. If I can use it, I will use it to defend the Shia. Um, but if I want to defend the Ahmadi, then I have to use others. But the fact in Indonesia, not many people use it. Many people, I mean, like when they attack Shia, for example, because of the influence from the Syrian um, political um, problems in Syria, for example, well, they're, they're not going to listen to fatwa, they're not going to listen to um, Risalah Aman or whatever. When they want to attack one group, they attack one group with one pretext or another. They may quote from Quran and others, and that's it. So <clears throat> again, for the theological reasons, if we can use it, use it. If not, I think in the context of citizenship in a, in a state, then, yeah, I, I don't think um, that, that um, should matter. I mean, in terms of what the beliefs. Thank you. And that's all we have for this episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a like or a comment wherever you like. 
it would really help us out. And if you want to explore more on the Muslim case for freedom, visit islamandlibertynetwork.org. You can also support us through a donation button on the site. Thank you for listening to this podcast.